Happy Friday. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Friday, January 21st, 2022. This is episode number 199. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour and Conference, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you are listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, this show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Join us and over 24,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe and support our show. Today we're talking about a high bazaar event in Connecticut, the break-ins in Oakland, possible payback for defund the police, are social equity licenses helping? Is weed bad for you? Not. The war on drugs 2.0, new market opportunities in California, a study on targeting teens and social media, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. We love doing that, so behave. Kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, part-time firefighter, and cat herder, and director of operations at LB Atlantis. Her superpowers are overcoming obstacles and challenges with unstoppable energy. She's also an amazing daughter, friend, and activist. Nicole, what's your headline today? Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Friday. Um, My headline today comes with a bit of a trigger warning uh, because it is about human trafficking. Uh, My headline comes out of Newswatch 12 ABC, and the headline reads, Homeland Security digs into the human trafficking aspect of Southern Oregon's illegal marijuana trade. Now, I'll start by saying there was a video on this headline in this article um, that they exposed a property that was a warehouse um, that was housing uh, a decent amount of immigrants that were living in just absolute squalor conditions. Um, And so this isn't something that is just like a maybe this might be happening like this for sure is happening. Uh, Seattle, Washington. And an ongoing crackdown on the burgeoning illegal marijuana trade in southern Oregon is drawing increased attention from the state and federal government, including the investigation arm of the Department of Homeland Security. Newswatch 12 spoke on Thursday with special agent in charge uh, Robert Hammer, interesting name, to get a better sense of what Homeland Security Investigations is doing to combat human trafficking and worker exploitations on these black market farms, what law enforcement call narco-slavery. 
According to HSI, these illegal farms are often operated by with labor of migrant workers who have been told that work is legal, and often they are farming hemp. Workers are trafficked in the hundreds, if not thousands, under the impression that they'll be able to earn a better life for their families. Hammer said the HSI is working with local law enforcement agencies to better understand how migrant workers are recruited and how farms are often operated by and established by drug cartels. Our goal is really to make sure that there are in, in locksteps with the state and local partners, as well as leveraging our unique authorities as the pertain to human trafficking, Hammer says. One migrant worker arrives in the state job site, Hammer says, and they often find themselves stuck with nowhere to go. No one that they know, no money, and usually without a firm grasp of the English language or proper paperwork to do anything about it. What is What we have seen is the condition in these conditions have been being asked to work in these conditions. Are they being asked to live on those farms are well below what normal human beings should be expected to do, he continued. In some cases, Hammer says migrant laborers are being worked to death with bodies found and discarded on the property. Josephine County Sheriff's identified at least two deaths tied to a grow operation in 2021. In August, uh, a Hispanic man was dropped off at the Caves Chevron, very near death. He died en route to the hospital, prompting an investigation that eventually led to major illegal marijuana grow busts. A few months later, the sheriff's office said that they received a tip that led them to the man's body. He had been shot and buried in a shallow grave near the where the former illegal grow site was. Many of the illegal grows busted thus far in southern Oregon have been the land, on land lease from local property owners, but Heimer said that the cartels are changing their tactics and increasingly by upping for local land in their operations. We're used to seeing them leveraging land in California on BLM land. They have shifted to southern Oregon, and they're blatant enough to actually procure land, sign leases and for, for land instead of trying to do it superstitiously in the middle of the forest, says Hammer. According to the Hammers DHS, local goal is to identify that the keys that are responsible in helping these farms operate. They're com commodities that are being used in these situations that are absolutely unfair. We have individuals running around multiple farms, paying the workers, recruiting the workers, supporting back office operations for these trafficking operation operations, says Hammer. DHS and the FBI and local law enforcement, as well as local community organizations, are working together to try to not only stop legal operations in Southern Oregon, but also to truly understand and stop trafficking at its source in the work with partnerships with organizations in other countries to educate workers about illegal trafficking trade before they arrive in the U.S. Now, this is something that, you know, obviously is not only happening in cannabis. Human trafficking is a huge issue, and I definitely just want to make sure that we are understanding, you know, the importance of properly regulating this industry because this is absolutely deplorable. This can't keep happening. We absolutely have to do something about the fact that human beings are being trafficked to grow cannabis here in California and Oregon and Washington. And I will say firsthand, I have definitely seen some of the farms where people are definitely kind of stuck here. Um, and it's it's not a beautiful thing. It's really, really very scary. And I'm, I'm concerned that, you know, this is going to be something that the industry gets looked at as if we're doing this. Um, and that's definitely not a part of of the legacy market here in California. And I'm Nicole West reporting for the State of Cannabis News. It's a, it's a really hard problem. I mean, what can be done? What can we do? You know, it's a part of prohibition, I guess. But the hard part is, you know, we're having these conversations of like that gray line and like the legacy, you know, that still exists. 
when we're still kind of not aware that 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 transition has to happen and we're not, you know, a part of it, this is something that the, you know, the illicit market is going to get blamed for. And so it's, we just, you know, being very conscious of the fact that this is something that if you are, you know, trying to grow big time under the radar, um, this is something that, you know, the illicit market is going to be getting blamed for. And I just would hate to be, uh, you know, in those person, those people's shoes. Nicole, do you happen to know if the tip-off came from Hunter Biden's laptop? <laughs> I think this is something that we saw in the legacy market, unfortunately, in some things and some very bad operators and very poor actors. So it's not surprising. But my hope is that like with this legal market, that a lot of those things that would be left behind in um, we could move forward. But apparently, it seems like uh, cheddar brings rats. So... If no one else wants to comment, we will keep on moving. Up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is also the dopest husband alive. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What have you got today, Rico? Uh, yeah, I got a sticky story today. So mine's coming out of uh, Cannabis Now, and it's, um, is the marijuana dispensary break-in wave payback for defund the police? The final two weeks of November 2020 brought in at least 25 Bay Area cannabis business break-ins and burglaries, according to cannabis advocates. The still unresolved crimes are causing industry leaders to question police commitment uh, to public safety as operators remain on high alert throughout California. The main concern? As reports rolled in, police response, if any at all, came hours later. Y'all may remember the State of Cannabis News Hour reporting on one specific um, exception to the reports of cops showing up late. It was November 16th in San Fran. A dispensary security feed captured both assailants smashing into a legal dispensary as well as a packed squad car of cops right outside watching the whole thing go down. According to the article, Ali, um, Ali Hamalian, uh, the chair of San Francisco's Cannabis Oversight Committee and founder and owner of Sunset Connect Manufacturing Facility says that at a meeting just before Christmas, top SFPD brass apologized for the incident, promised to discipline officers involved, and swore it would never happen again. No updates have been given, despite several requests by local press and operators. In fact, Cannabis Now's request for a detailed explanation from SFPD and a confirmation of uh, Hamalian's account were unanswered. SFPD spokesman Matt Dorsey, however, did say that the department used the opportunity that the episode presented to engage in officer training. So in other words, another quote-unquote learning experience, right? Other cannabis regulating city officials also seem not to be bothered about the crime wave. John Pierce, acting director of the city's official of uh, of the city's official of Office of Cannabis, said in an email, his office is, quote, in, uh, committed to continuing to create opportunities for operators and law enforcement to connect and collectively discuss and address public safety concerns. He ignored all other questions asked, including how the crime wave is affecting the industry. Several cannabis businesses, uh, business operators wishing to remain anonymous in fear of cre uh, creating further friction between themselves and authorities spoke on this situation with Cannabis Now saying pretty much across the board they feel abandoned by the police and city government. Wondering if... It isn't intentional as if uh, as either comeuppance for the defunded police movement or just a general dislike for cannabis and disinclination to get involved. Y'all know I always say you'll find 95% of answers just by simply following the money. And it should be noted that these 
mostly unsolved and uninvestigated crimes came at a very peculiar time. Cannabis Now points out, while the illicit market thrives, most legal cannabis business owners are crying poverty, smothered by taxes that hit 40%, making some question the entire legalization experiment together. And even as we've reported on SOC NewsHour, the industry's imminent collapse in California. In 2016, when Prop 64 was passed, legacy operators were promised the chance to participate in the green rush and to come out of the gray area, pay taxes, and enjoy the benefits of mainstream businesses, uh, business-owning peers do as well, including police protection. Do y'all really think that this shit's going to convince more trappers to go mainstream? Get the fuck out of here with that. Shani Turner, she is the City of Oakland Cannabis Regulatory Commission Chair, not San Francisco, as the article incorrectly stated. Um, She's also a good friend of mine and prominently quoted in the article. She's agreed to join us in the conversation this morning, and um, she's up on stage. Good to see you, Chaney. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. Thanks for the invite. Happy New Year. It's so glad to have you on with us this morning. And uh, judging by everything that I've seen on social media and in the news, you've been very busy these first three weeks. <laughs> and, uh, in this article, you're quoted as saying, prior to November six, uh, 2016, when California voters approved adult use marijuana legalization, there was a grand total of one attempted robbery at an Oakland medical cannabis dispensary, and that robbery failed. Can you tell us a little bit about um, where you believe the industry's gone wrong um, and why police who've been paid our high-ass taxes here in California, um, why they're seeming to be sitting on the sidelines while operators get hit over the head over and over again? Yeah, um, and I just want to make a correction because there's a few errors in that article. Actually, between 2004 and 2018, there was actually one one robbery that it wasn't failed, unfortunately, but it was only one. Um, I think it's important to note that, you know, we are living in some different times right now. Um, and what's happening in regards to uh, cannabis operations being targeted, um, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not just a cannabis issue. Um, you know, like I said in the article, it's a public safety issue. And so you're having multiple businesses, large and small, that are being targeted. Um, There were multiple pharmacies, small pharmacies that were um, uh, targeted, as well as, you know, other businesses. Um, And so I just want to put that out there because now there's this stigma that, you know, cannabis attracts crime. And that's just not true. Um, There is an increase of crime in general. Now, in regards to, um, you know, the police and the police responses and doing their work, um, they know that these businesses, you know, are vulnerable. But unfortunately, um, cannabis has never been a priority um, in regards to the police and, um, and, you know, in crimes. Um, people assume that cannabis businesses just have, you know, this surplus of money and can easily recover um, over other businesses. And that's just not true because we all know the, the barriers and challenges that um, cannabis businesses face. Um, yes, Oakland, and I'm just speaking of Oakland, you know, in regards to defunding the police, we are one of the cities that has been leading, you know, that movement. But of course, it's just to reallocate those funds. We want 
we want people to do actual police work. And so in some of our last meetings that we've had with um, uh, Oakland police officers, really um, asking for, you know, some transparency and holding them accountable, um, what protocols will will they put in place um, it, it, as far as communicating with cannabis operators um, and the cannabis community here in Oakland in general. And so um, it's something that's ongoing. Um, unfortunately, there was another attempted um, burglary that was supposed to happen during the weekend of New Year's Eve. But um, the police fortunately were proactive in communicating that they received some information and that went down to our city council members and to the commission. And so um, as long as we find ways to communicate and try to support each other as we build more in trying to find solutions to keeping our uh, cannabis operations safe. Oh, absolutely. Um, and you guys had a an awesome rally just last week um, talking about a lot of the issues that are going on in the Bay and, and across California. You want to give us a quick update uh, on that and how we can uh, continue to support you, um, the good work that you do, and all the operators that are struggling in California? Yeah. So last week there was, you know, um, uh, an action at the uh, at the Capitol uh, organized by uh, Supernova Women, um, also including, you know, some other uh, statewide um, um, organizations um, and entrepreneurs. Um, and so it was, you know, um, the social equity community and our small craft farmers, you know, coming together. Uh, as you stated, cannabis uh, operations pay some of the highest taxes in Oakland, uh, cannabis business pay the highest, you know, um, taxes in the city. We all know that taxes hurt cannabis businesses, especially equity and small owned. We cannot overregulate and overtax our way into a successful industry. It just doesn't make sense. And so it was a call out around the cultivation and, um, uh, the, you know, the excise tax, um, also, businesses that were targeted need some form of relief and um, asking, you know, the state to provide additional funding so that these businesses can stay open. Um, it's kind of scary times right now. Some people might not make it until the end of the year. And that's very unfortunate, especially for our legacy um, farmers and operators who have been a pretty much the backbone of support for California cannabis for decades. Cheney, absolutely, absolutely love that. Uh, Cheney, um, uh, Oakland pays an extraordinary amount of high amount of taxes as far as these cannabis businesses. Is there any of that funding that's able to be allocated towards the police force in the way to uh, to create a better relationship between the cannabis business operators and the police department? Because I feel once these people understand that they're all people and they're all here helping the community. Um, the, the, the interactions tend to be a lot, lot, lot better and response times tend to be a lot better as well. Um, well, personally, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I don't want to give any additional funding to police, but speaking as someone who, you know, is working on behalf of, you know, um, operators, um, we have to find solutions in building these relationships, um, during our last meeting, um, there was discussion around, you know, funding to support um, operators for additional security. And yes, um, having dedicated dedicated officers who can respond to cannabis crimes only um, um, for certain 
beats that have uh, that have majority cannabis operations. And so those are some things. And and in in the past, you know, honestly, we we only had one officer that supported the entire cannabis <laughs> uh, community here in Oakland. And um, we didn't even know that last year that that officer's position was cut. Um, uh, the mayor actually cut that position. And so there really wasn't any support. Um, That's crazy. As far as having, uh, as far as having um, uh police support. And so those are some things that are being discussed. And yes, um, you know, possibly adding more officers. Who Cheney, Cheney I, have, I, have, I have a good idea. Free marijuana massages for all Oakland PD officers. They will love cannabis and protect it. And if their bullshit stories are correct... They will not pass drug tests after they have topicals on their skin. Oh my gosh! All right. <laughs> we, we, well, I mean, Oakland City Council could always elect to not not drug test their police officers. Yeah, well, I'm not I'm not in favor of giving 12 any free services, but um, we definitely want to make sure that you know the work is is you know actually being done um, and not just response. We want to have we want these crimes to be prevented so any way that they can be prevented prevention keeps businesses safe but they also keep uh they keep people safe absolutely so um this is this has been rico lamite the dopest dad down here on these la streets reporting live for the state of cannabis news hour thank you so very much for joining us this morning cheney and just please keep on doing what you're doing we're going to continue following your adventures and supporting you however you can Thanks, everybody. Have a good day. Thank you so much, Cheney, and thank you for bringing that headline, Rico. Um, Definitely an important conversation that we need to be a part of. Um, And up next, we have Jason Beck. Jason Beck is the longest-running retailer in the history of cannabis, as well as the industry's very own Kaiser Soze. What do you have for us today, Jason? Oh, good morning, Nicole. Thank you so much. Today, my story comes out of Phoenix, Arizona. And they say social equity licenses were supposed to help those hurt by the drug war. But will they? A lawsuit claims current rules could enrich a few and licenses may end up in the hands of multi-state operators. If a golden ticket fell into your hands, you'd take it, right? An opportunity for success and prosperity. A chance to give yourself a shot at a better life. In Arizona, the legalization of adult-use cannabis brought such an opportunity for those who qualify But it might not be as cut and dry as you may think. It most definitely is a golden ticket, Celeste Rodriguez, a social advocate with Acre 41, said. Rodriguez wants those golden tickets to be used to enrich a community, not only a person. It would make a huge difference, Rodriguez said. It would bring employment to the neighborhood. However, Rodriguez is concerned that won't happen because of how the system is set up. Prop 207 did not lay out how the licenses would be distributed. The Arizona Department of Health and Human Services set up those rules last year to submit an application. 51% of the application had to be controlled by someone who fit the qualifications for getting a social equity license. They also needed $4,000. The rules are set up. People have the freedom to choose who they want to work with. A lot of them have chosen to work with dispensaries, investors, and Grandma Dimitri Downing, 
uh, co-founder of the Arizona Cannabis Trade Association, said he's also an avid listener of the State of Cannabis News Hour. According to Acre 41, corporations and investors make up a vast majority of those backing social equity applicants, with seemingly non-affiliated applicants making up roughly 30 percent of their entries. Uh, Downing said winners should not have restrictions on what they do with their licenses. Every qualified applicant received a qualification because they were hurt in some way by the war on drugs. Overall, Downing wants the system as a whole to operate as a free market. The point of having an enterprise or business is to grow it, he said, or to grow it. And to we lost you, Jason, or is that just me? No, it might be uh, Green Street they Internet. They are helping applicants in the process <laughs> when asked if they plan to buy the licenses. If an applicant was awarded one, they said, we are we are open to whatever the future brings. The company said in a current uh, in a said they currently do operate locations in the zip codes applicants had to live in and said in an email statement, overall, there are a lot of reparations that need to be made and we hope to help individuals to better their situation. Acre 41 is part of a lawsuit trying to change the rules of the light of, of these licenses and they want to require the licenses to be required to always be owned by those who qualify for them and must be required to operate in communities most hurt by the war on drugs. Well, I personally agree with my buddy Dimitri on this. I think that if you win a license, this, the, the applicant should be able to do whatever they want to do with it within their choice. It's their right and their freedom, and I protect that choice. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I'm just, uh, I'm just torn like on a, a lot of these new states. They say that they're doing uh, social equity just to check a box there, and it, and it just continues to fail and continues to, to fuck up the lives, upend the lives of, of people, good citizens that actually want to participate um, in an industry that continues to overtax us, overregulate us, and just make it really, really hard for the same people who have been uh, targeted by the war on drugs to actually succeed, uh, period. This is, this is not just a shot at, um, at Arizona. It's like every fucking state has been failing, and it just seems to be more of a, a burden on whoever tries to get these licenses, and you have to sell out in order to even um, uh, get your name on the board or get one of these licenses. It's just not fair, um, and it's not working. We need fucking reparations. Agreed. Tickets to be given uh, a position in an industry where the margins are so thin, even for well-funded operators, uh, the problem fundamentally is 280E. A golden ticket would be making 280E inapplicable to equity operators. Yeah, that's a federal policy, Omar. You're not going to get any local traction on that. Omar, do you have spatial audio on? Your audio was all over my head right now. That was so crazy. Did anyone else hear that? Yes. Omar was yes. checking yes. in from the Asperger. Is that better? He's, <laughs> he's calling in from the mothership. <laughs> I thought the blue. I thought the blue cheese was kicking ah. in. <laughs> Can I comment real quick, um, Susan? Yes, please. Uh, yes, please. We've got so, Nicole uh, Buffong up from the audience. Please. Uh, yeah, so uh, I, I've spoken with Celeste and with Jaja. She's in the audience. I thought she would jump up. Um, Acre 41 is her organization. And the issue is that the Department of Health is not following their own regulations. There was 1,500 applications for 26 licenses. And the fact that they even allowed those 1,500 licenses to be or applications to be submitted that we're not following guidelines for who qualifies for social equity, therein lies the problem. And the plot thickens. Don't this have to follow the money very long. It's well, so interesting, you know, when we set up these programs and then 
the either the regulations or the state kind of undermines them by by not fully implementing the program that has been written into written into law. And I've been thinking about this a lot with the one acre cap in California and how that's undermined so much of of what followed uh, by by not adhering to that in the very beginning. And this just sort of reminds me of that. It's a shame. It really is. And the more national attention we can bring around this issue and what they're doing in Arizona needs to be brought. And that's why they they have their case. And it's a solid case that the DHS didn't even follow their own regulations. I think it's important to know, too, that in this article, it also stated that one of these licenses uh, given out would hold a value of about $8 million to any uh, one applicant that received that. And uh, if you were to receive one of those uh, licenses and sell it for $8 million, you would not be subject to any 280E tax on the sale of that license. I just want to remind everyone, we're way over time on this headline, but I, it's super important. And Shaja, did you want to weigh in? And then Omar, and then we're going to relight the room. Yes, good morning. I'd just like to say that the intention of the licenses were to go to people from communities that were disproportionately affected. Everyone has been affected, but everyone hasn't been disproportionately affected. So when we think about that, we need to really consider what that means. It doesn't just mean anybody that was affected. It means a certain people who were disproportionately affected. Thank you for that, Jaja. I needed to hear that. Uh, I felt that, uh, but you you said it so beautifully. Omar, did you, you. did you want to have the last word? Yeah, I think people who were actually affected, because I've represented hundreds of cannabis defendants, uh, do need to be first in line for reparations. You know, the way that there's no standardized definition of social equity. So in places like Humboldt, if you live within a few miles of a place that got raided, you're now a social equity applicant. But they're not excluding those who called in the raids. So all of the informants and all of the people who called in the raids on the neighbors what? are now social equity applicants. What? I, I would like to speak to this as somebody who is a cannabis felon and technically would qualify um, in the way of social equity and the, the, com- the compliance side of it. Um, I genuinely think the BIPOC community deserves it drastically more than I do. And I think that every single person of color should be in line in front of me. Same. Um, same. And I had an all the informants who testified in court against other persons of color too. Um, I've I, real life in in my feelings, uh, people of color deserve this opportunity before I do. Um, that's As a the- person of color. I say thank you very much, but no thank you. I believe more in equality and based on your life experience. I disagree. Agreed. I'm with you, Nicole. I disagree also. You're disqualified. Well, snitches are different. Okay, fine, Jason. That's not. We're not. Yeah. Let's pull the snitch conversation out of here. We're talking right. about. We're talking about Nicole being a felon, being a white person, white person who's a felon, versus any person of color not a felon. Any person of color deserves it more than I do. And I was run through the fucking ringer. I was made an example of. The system fucked me. The system fucked me since I was young. And a person of I color- hear you, but, but here, let me tell you, like, a person of color also includes third world elite, people who have, like, lots of money and have never, never experienced actual discrimination. You know, there's many people from, say, hypothetically, I'm from Mexico. There's, like, ultra-rich people in Mexico who uh, would pass as people of color without actually experiencing 
you know, any more disadvantaged than you have, Nicole. That doesn't mean that people in America aren't shitty to them because they don't speak the fucking language that well or because they have a certain amount of melanin in their skin. People are still shitty. Some of them speak English perfectly. They, you know, they were raised to, so that's a, that's such by a, that's nationally. Such a minority. The majority of people of color have been being treated like shit over this plant. It's not, mm-hmm. that's not a minority. That is the majority of the people of color who have been involved have been treated like shit. Majority of the people who are getting fucked with over this are people of color majority of them and i do not disagree well you're changing my mind on this i'm an an educated white person and i was fucked with by the system and i do Mm -hmm. not think that i deserve anything over a person of color and it doesn't matter unless they're a snitch i will leave that caveat jason kudos on that one outside of snitches if you were a person of color you get my card before i do it's it's yours love you nicole yeah. Holy cow. Thank you. Oh my God. What a conversation. We're definitely going to uh, get that segment out on YouTube later today. And um, we need to get a room as we always say, but we're going to do a really quick, quick relight. You are tuned into the state of cannabis news hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. Less. All right. So she's a pot loving PhD pushing for cannabis policy for everyday people and an outside the box activist who remains optimistic in the midst of cannabis chaos. Up next, it's Menika Mahajan. What you got for us this morning, Menika? Hello. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much, Rico. Um, so I'm going to be talking about something that is a uh, you know, a little bit of a downer, but it's a story that we've been following and reporting on uh, on a regular basis. But I wanted to cover this East Bay Express piece by Dan Mitchell. And it stood out to me because it just doesn't hold back on criticizing California's model through quotes and Mitchell's own choices of words. The headline reads, The War on Drugs 2.0, a cannabis legalization rally, highlights the state's hostile attitude towards the industry. And here's how Mitchell introduces and summarizes the core problems. If California's government had set out to create the worst possible conditions for the legal cannabis industry, it couldn't have done much better or worse, really, than it has done through a series of lurches and stumbles since voters legalized weed for adult use in 2016. The industry is overtaxed, overregulated, and underserved by its government. It's under threat from both the illicit market that dwarfs it and sometimes by bands of criminal marauders who periodically rob, burglarize, and vandalize cannabis businesses. Meanwhile, wholesale prices are plummeting, putting small growers at risk of losing their livelihoods. Cannabis entrepreneurs have had enough. They say that if the state doesn't deal seriously with the situation this year, the industry will collapse. We've talked about how media coverage influences policy decisions before. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to cover this story. Mitchell's piece, including the remarks he chose to highlight from the, from the rally, which happened last week, frames the system as an abysmal failure, hostile towards the industry, a continuation of the war on drugs, and calls Governor Newsom out for making, quote, empty promises. Mitchell also mentions that the industry would have imploded two years ago if not for COVID and the declaration of cannabis as essential, which falls in the, the governor's um, plus column um, as far as taking care of of cannabis as an industry and the patients. 
But he says, Mitchell, again, that, quote, things are bad again and in some ways much worse. And the article ends on a tentative and cautious note. It's always impossible to guess what the state legislature might do, but advocates going to address that if it's going to address these problems, it will have to be this year or the industry will implode to be taken over by big weed. After reading this article, and the article is much longer, I'm just I just pulled some highlights out of it, but I suggest anyone reads it who um, who appreciates Dan Mitchell's reporting. But after reading this and thinking back to the various articles we've covered over the past months on whether collapse is on the horizon, I'm really wondering, you know, how is this all being received in Sacramento? Newsom mentioned in his budget that the administration plans to work with the legislature to reform taxes. And, of course, how that might happen is complicated and dictated by uh, Proposition 64, and there are high vote thresholds that need to be met in order to reform this law. And I've been hearing from farmers and small businesses that they're just exasperated with the problems of 64 and um, and increasingly interested in repealing it. So I would love to hear from audience members and my fellow correspondents what is your stance on Prop 64 and the next steps based on this accelerating crisis? Uh, what are you hearing on the ground and in your communities? And should this be fixed? Can it be fixed? Or do you want to see it scrapped? This is Menika Mahajan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. In my opinion, Menika, the headline has been for uh, four years, California's a pot mess. California's a pot mess. California's a pot mess. Mm-hmm. Can it get messier? Can it get uglier? Yes, it can. It's a pot mess. I just want to point out that uh, Cheney Turner is actually in the middle of that picture, too. Yeah, Cheney. And I I love the brilliance. I I first met Susan when we were thinking up an alternative to Proposition 64 because we were working on statewide legalization initiatives back before cannabis got semi-legalized. I don't look at Prop 64 as legalization. I always called it, you know, um, trauma, you know, alma. Uh, because it was halfway step towards legalization. We still have all of the uh, cannabis crimes on the books. They just changed the punishments. They tweaked with the machinery of prohibition. They did not get rid of it. Yeah, Omar, that was such a brilliant plan. Uh, Pebbles Trippet and uh, Bill Panzer and, you know, repeal cannabis prohibition. And that's what we need to do on a federal level is just take out all of the prohibitions, let the states thrive, and then the feds can come in and figure it out. I like yeah, the that's a win to freedom blow. I like to quickly say that Prop 64 is is a, is a glaring example of how you can't piecemeal shit together and think that incremental success is going to help everybody. It fucks over the majority of people in the, um, that are at the bottom, especially that can't keep up with the laws and have to continuously come out of their own pockets to just try to survive. And they end up having to go back into the illegal side just to feed their families. We need and to- I wanted to also point out, this is why education is so important. Um, majority of us in this room who are, you know, advocates or um, cannabis entrepreneurs, we already knew about how taxation and regulation would hurt the industry. But it's the general voters who voted for, quote unquote, legalization. And so we need to use our platforms like rooms like this is important um, and and also, you know, supporting organizations, but taking this messaging outside of our cannabis communities 
and really educating voters because we can do all of this work. But at the end of the day, if people still are voting in favor of just legalization and not in favor of an equitable industry, it 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 will just continue having the same shit. Cheney, so the, I think the, that's really important. The people that were behind Prop 64, m- mistakenly or or maybe not a mistake, they, they put too much uh, emphasis on what was polling well. The voters didn't fucking know what was in Prop 64. Exactly. You could have just said, vote for uh, vote yes if you want legal weed. They would have voted for that, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I, I agree. I think that the voters of California voted for safe access and legal cannabis and did not understand understand some of the pitfalls of Proposition 64. Um, This was a very difficult thing, I think, for a lot of us in the industry in 2016. I still think that right now we have a seat at the table. We have billions deposited at the banks of Sacramento. And so that industry will have to be reckoned with. You know, it will not go over well if this industry dies and those tax revenue dollars are not there. So I think that compared to advocacy pre-2016 and some of the work we can do now, we have a voice and we are a business. And so now I think we need to just advocate for change to continue to grow the business. I don't know if we hadn't finally gotten 64 or some version of that law, we would have the same voice and we would be lingering in some of the things that were wrong with the traditional market in terms of really providing safe access or being able to grow a safe and sustainable company. So while not perfect, I do think that because we have a legal industry, we do have a voice and we can lobby and we can have forums like this to speak openly, truth to power and hopefully affect change. Who has a voice, though, right now? I mean, I think that some people do have a voice, but a lot of the complaints that that we've been talking about in these different pieces have been communicated so many times to the state, and there's some louder voice that they're listening to. California is not perfect in, in any way whatsoever, but I will say this. Prop 64 is greater than what the alternative were, would have been. The alternative would have been Macursa, and that would have been death to the industry because Macursa called for doctors to only be able to write 100 prescriptions per year, and there would not have been enough doctors writing prescriptions to, to serve the adequate medical base that was already um, prevalent in California. So there had to be some type of an alternative. And that's what it was. It came in the form of Prop 64. Sounds like a money problem. I mean, I think the other alternative that that some of these um, these farmers and folks are, I just hear that there's, you know, regret and uh, a desire to, to return to the Prop 215 Days And I know that that's something that we've discussed on, on this show before, and I'm not advocating for anything in particular, but I'm not so sure of how uh, Prop 64 can really be fixed. We, we need to, we need to, that, that, that's, that's what I was saying. That's exactly what I was saying. You can't go back to the Prop 64 days because McCursa would have kicked in. So everyone that thinks, oh, I wish I could go back to the 215 days, it would have never happened because McCursa would have kicked in and would have smothered us all out. We need to keep moving. Uh, Amenika, I want to know who those louder voices are, don't you? Oh, yeah. Let's keep moving. Uh, Were we going to let the two audience members Um, have the last one? Yeah, sorry. 
Uh, you each get 20 seconds. Stephen, you first, 20 seconds. Yeah, no, uh, I get what you're uh, saying, Jason, about the, the Proposition 215. I, I tend to agree and I understand. I believe that the voters were absolutely 110% fooled as to what they were voting for and weren't fully informed, but as is everything in the United States of America, uninformed. Um, this is turned into your typical oligarchical situation. Those who have the money, have the power, have the voice, and nobody else has that you can't you they're selling shelf space i can't afford shelf space can you afford shelf space troy no sir troy 20 seconds for us you got an opinion on this y'all know where i stand the medical uh patients accessibility has been destroyed with 64 if you ask me um i think that you know the testing and all that is a beautiful thing but i think it's overrated i think when you went from 12 plants to six plants that should have threw up a red flag that this isn't exactly going the direction that we want it to go um i just really think that uh something needs to be done just for the medical side yeah definitely well thank you so much for your guys's comments and for that headline Menica. and we will go ahead and jump to our next correspondent i actually have to pull my screen to a full wide so i can get his whole intro founder of the law firm focusing on transactional cannabis law director of the national cannabis industry association legal pub publisher and author in Gangier, or as we like to call it a cannabis sommelier and the purple belt in high style brazilian jiu-jitsu what do you have for us today omar Happy Friday, everyone. My story is from MJ Biz Daily by Chris Kasakia. The headline is 2022 brings new markets and opportunities for California marijuana firms. And the story is more than a dozen California cities are opening new recreational cannabis licensing opportunities this year, either by embracing the legal marijuana industry for the first time or by increasing the number of available business permits. Several other cities, meanwhile, are laying the groundwork for new markets down the road by drafting and developing cannabis ordinances. The rollout of new adult use markets and business opportunities comes as cities across the state are eager to bring in additional tax revenue after the pandemic and other factors depleted public coffers. The ongoing shift is a welcome sign for the state's struggling marijuana sector, which remains forbidden in the vast majority of California cities and, at the same time, must compete against the thr thriving illicit market. According to Hirsch Jane, founder of Los Angeles-based cannabis consultancy Ananda Strategy, only 115 of the state's 482 cities, or roughly 24%, have a licensed dispensary open today, but that is starting to change. The retail expansion is far and wide, from urban centers in San Diego and San Jose to small towns such as Madera into the Central Valley and Oxnard along the Southern California coast. Madera, about 25 miles north of Fresno, is issuing its first eight retail licenses, including two designated for social equity applicants. The agricultural town, which hadn't disclosed application timelines as of press time, is also offering unlimited permits for vertically integrated operators, an emerging shift among city and county governments in California. Hemet, a mid-sized town in Riverside County that struggled to recover from the Great Recession, 
has foregone licensing caps altogether and is instead relying on zoning allowances to dictate the number of retail outlets. San Diego, an underserved market considering its large population, is among several California cities with established commercial cannabis programs looking to expand. The state's second largest city, with nearly 1.4 million residents, San Diego appears poised to lift several of its zoning restrictions, including narrowing a thousand-foot buffer between marijuana businesses and parks, libraries, places of worship, and playgrounds, down to 600 feet. Um, the constraints, critics contend, are a major reason why the city has opened only 25 dispensaries, despite approving 36 back in 2014. If those restrictions are eased, which could come within the next month or so, retail licenses could expand nearly 40%. Those municipalities looking to expand existing programs also include the Silicon Valley hub of San Jose. The Northern California city of a million residents has only 16 dispensaries. The San Jose City Council is weighing a policy overhaul to boost retail and delivery locations to 42 while eliminating several zoning restrictions and easing others. The tech mecca is also looking to create new business opportunities for social equity applicants. Uh, looking ahead, several other cities are in the process of drafting or developing cannabis ordinances, including Monterey, Riverside, Lodi, Delano, and Visalia. The lack of retail outlets, particularly compared to the number of licensed cultivators, has suppressed California's marijuana economy, according to Tom Adams, CEO and principal analyst of LA research firm Global Go Analytics. Quote, the struggles the California legal cannabis market is undergoing, particularly the meltdown in wholesale flower prices in 2021, is largely due to the fact that local jurisdictions have licensed 10 times as many cultivation operations as retail storefronts, some 7,500 versus about 750, he said. Most agricultural products, think almonds or oranges, have the opposite ratio in which retailers outnumber suppliers by a wide margin. Quote, certainly the number of cultivators is going to shrink from attrition, end quote, Adam said. But hopefully all of these local moves to allow more storefronts also balance out the supply chain in a positive direction. That's the story. From my perspective, it's a good step in the right direction, but we need a lot more. Just having a dozen cities is not going to make that huge a change in the percentage. And if the local municipalities don't act, which I don't think they will on their own, uh, then Sacramento needs to do something. It should be like alcohol where um, no dry counties are allowed. Every county, when it comes to alcohol in California, is a wet county. And right now, with regard to cannabis, we have these dry counties, dry cities, and they should not be allowed. Agree 100%. We need to take less steps and more leaps forward. We're at the end of the, the rope for that story. And up next, um, he's known and respected as an outspoken defender of the culture and perpetual bridger of gaps. And our next correspondent can teach us all a thing or two about going from legacy to legal without losing your soul in the process. The co-founder of President, uh, co-founder and president of Poppin' Barkley, and hands down one of my favorite OGs in the game. Up next is Guy Rocourt. What you got for us today, brother? Hey, thanks, Rico. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, Nicole. Uh, today, coming out of the Times Union, uh, my article is A Joint with Dinner. Some entrepreneurs already mixing business with cannabis. Uh, pretty interesting article coming out of New York. 
the state's cannabis control board or CCB is still set set to still needs to set guidelines for selling cannabis recreationally and to issue permits for dispensaries. The steps are likely to push the timing back for cannabis brick and mortar sales back to the summer of 2023. But these state level delays are not slowing down uh, certain entrepreneurs. Nick Gordon, who is the owner and curator of Ellenville's Love Velema, an underground jazz club where cannabis is part of the entertainment, opened a 42,000, 42, no, I'm sorry, 4,200, 4,200, no, I think there's a pun in there, 4,200 square foot ranch house set on three acres in Ulster County, and the residence doubles as a boutique hotel called the Mod House, where three suites are available to rent from Airbnb, and memberships in the club uh, basically... Uh, we sell memberships in our club that hold events where we serve cannabis and alcohol for free. Just like in college, not quite. It's more like you're invited to a dinner party and there's an open bar and it's a free-for-all where everything is appropriate in uh, moderate amounts. Think pre-roll joints and, you know, uh, following top-shelf cocktails, says Gordon. Um, another group highlighted on here was also... Uh, well, I should just say that the CBC chair then, of course, declared that giving away cannabis with purchase was illegal. But in Jordan's case, he's not gifting joints to every paying member. He's just making cannabis available at his venue. Uh, another emerging bud and breakfast is uh, headed up by David and Mia Serrano, which purchased uh, an Ulster County farm called Hacienda Don Pedro in the summer of 2020 with the goal of making a cannabis-friendly space to host vis visitors for overnight and extended stays. So bottom line, what's happening here is kind of interesting. It's like, our, you know, it's so funny, we were just talking about 215 and this kind of thing. Club memberships, private clubs using cannabis as additives, as gifts with purchase, the same kind of collective model that we were using here in California, it does seem that some of these states are starting to cotton on to, oh, if we have a private club and we have some safe access, we can you know, have memberships reimbursing us in some way, shape, or form for cannabis and having a safe place to use cannabis. Um, one of these uh, providers, uh, a gentleman named McCabe, has a hemp farm uh, that he started since the uh, since he started the since the farm bill, and they grow and produce hemp. They also make products from that hemp, including gummies. And while their gummies are larger than other gummies, they use a cannabis product that is 0.3% by weight. So it's legally they can use it, but they still end up making 15 milligram gummies. And although the gummies are bigger than the ones you'd find in dispensaries, they also have actual cannabis coming from a legal hemp plant. So again, here we have providers trying to figure out safe access, trying to shoot loopholes to get people together to commiserate around cannabis, which really shouldn't be that hard. But kudos to these folks who are boots on the ground, really trying to push cannabis and safe access in their community, even though the state of New York hasn't really figured it out. And it might be another two or three years, it seems, before uh, New Yorkers really can access safe and decent flour. These folks are now providing membership type organizations where you can become a member just like you used to here in California and get some kind of safe access from these variety of venues. So pretty interesting concept. Um, this is Guy Rocourt reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Thank you, Guy. I'd love to hear from Omar and Brandon and Laura about uh, what your thoughts are on that that membership model, ha just having cannabis available. Well, if it's truly a private club and there's no sales, then I think it is legal 
you know, at least in California, to give away cannabis, uh, as long as the people are 21 and over. That's a business model that currently exists in places like Barcelona, the private membership-only club that's for adults and, you know, where the cannabis gets cultivated for the membership. Um, and I think it's something that um, could take off, you know, I, I, especially once people begin to gather more. I think there's going to be an appetite for all sorts of... Um, you know, convivial activities and private clubs certainly are able to cater to that. Uh, Todd, did you have something that you wanted to weigh in on? 20 seconds? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Quick, yeah, I was going to say certainly the private clubs are going to become very popular. They already are, you know, underground. I say here everywhere, but here in California. But I like uh, Guy bringing this up and just the different workarounds and loopholes. And they are going to be legal uh, workarounds and loopholes. And I'm, I'm proud to uh, hear about some of the creative. Thank you. Be careful with those loopholes, y'all. I'm going to say that firsthand. Up next, we have Christopher Smith. Christopher Smith is the communication strategist and the publisher of the American Cannabis Report and our very own Clark Kent. What do you have for us today, Superman? Good morning, Rico and Nicole. Good morning, Susan. Would you like a little spice with your breakfast today? Here goes. One thing I can say about the propaganda pushers and prohibition preachers, just when you think they might get tuckered out, those little fuckers crawl out from under the sink and try to scare everybody all over again. I should announce a trigger warning for bullshit. My headline is from Dope Magazine. Can cannabis companies target teens on social media, study claims. The quote-unquote data underlying this quote-unquote study is as thin as the paper it's printed on. Dope Magazine is complicit in the hype. Listen to the lead. A new new study with a modest sampling pool found that cannabis retail companies are not adhering to state restrictions on social media and are targeting teens. The study was published in the Journal of Studies on Alcohol and Drugs and found that many recreational cannabis companies market their products in a way that appeals to children and teens and flouting regulations. The study's bias is outlined immediately in a press release. Lead author Dr. Megan Moreno, a pediatrician, said, I had expected that cannabis companies were unlikely to fully adhere to existing guidelines. And surprise, surprise, her team was able to engineer data that confirmed her bias. The facts, quote-unquote facts of the study are telling. It examines social media posts from 2017 and 18. The data was collected in a FileMaker database, adorable, and it was turned into the, into the journal two years ago, but only posted two days ago. So the data they're looking at is four years old. It's even more sketchy than that. Did it take a broad look at social media posts by all cannabis companies? No. They picked four rec states in which they found 80 companies, but only 14 companies passed their stringent criteria. So did they at least look at all of their posts? No. Only Facebook and Instagram, only 2,660 posts. That's about one post every other day. And the big leap in logic in this hokey pokey study and the dope's coverage is that the companies are intentionally targeting teens when they break regulations. For example, a regulation that's aimed about what, at whether a product shown was to be on sale. Is this a teen-targeted message or simply a budget-conscious message? Another is use of project, uh, uh, use of product against regulations. Yes, but targeted at teens. Are teens especially susceptible to bong hits? Or put another way, if you want to target teens. Is that how you would do it? I don't think you can make that leap. And another finding, that Washington dispensaries showed branded products, such as T-shirts with the company logo. Guess how many? 
1%. So we have 99% compliance, yet the claim in the headline and dope magazines complicit is, is that cannabis companies are targeting teens. It's ridiculous. And the simplest question that no one is asking, why would dispensaries target teens when teens can't even get in the door? It all goes back to Reefer Madness days and never forget that the original title of that film was Tell Your Children. And I'm right on 10 o'clock and I'm going to land the plane. <laughs> it's, so, it's so outrageous. Cannabis companies are terrified of getting kicked off of social media. Come on, please. Uh, thank you so much for landing the plane, Christopher. What a show. We're going to have it available on uh, podcasts uh, soon, so please share it. If you missed any uh, of the show, Make sure you catch the replay or find us anywhere you get your podcast or on our YouTube channel. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all of the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. Huge thank you to Nicole and Rico for co-producing the show with me. Thank you to our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. And thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can try. Trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Goodbye.